welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Jeff Booth, a serial technology entrepreneur, advisor and board member to multiple businesses and organizations, and the author of the very popular book, The Price of Tomorrow, Why Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future. Jeff is also a prolific speaker and advocate for Bitcoin, educating people in all parts of the world about the nature of the problems we all face and how Bitcoin is an essential tool for resolving them. Finally, to further enhance his impact, Jeff recently founded Ego Death Capital, a venture fund for investing in companies in the Bitcoin ecosystem, and by doing so, accelerating the transition to what he likes to call a world of greater truth, hope, and abundance. Enjoy. There we go. Jeff, it's great, as always, to be with you today. Thanks for giving me the time. Yeah, no problem. Great to see you, John. So as I was just uh, explaining to you a little bit, I, you're one of the voices and one of the thinkers that um, I think has one of the best 10,000 foot uh, so-called views of what Bitcoin is all about. And I think you're really good at identifying not just, you know, the meaning of all this, but also kind of plucking out the aspects of it that are extremely misunderstood, especially by, you know, let's quote unquote, mainstream commentators or audiences and explicating why it is their thinking on it is perhaps, well, needs revision to put it lightly. And um, so for that reason today, what I'd like to do is, you know, kind of start at most fundamental and work our way all the way through everything that's going on in the world and how Bitcoin is going to fix it all. So should be able to do that in, in two hours. Not no, a big task. No problem. And for, <laughs> first of all, um, uh, that's a huge honor coming from you to say that I'm one of the, uh, because, because I think you understand kind of what, what the whole thing is about too. So thank you. My pleasure. Um, and thank you for all the work that you do in this space and, and give so, uh, so selflessly for it all. All right. So Basic premise. Let's start at the very bottom of things. Or perhaps theory, if not premise, you can, you can let me know what you think about it. But basically that the story of civilization is very much the story of property. You know, and we can go back into the archaeological record and we look at the first instances of writing in the, you know, the Sumerian tablets, for example, and these are transaction records, you know, goats for milk and honey for oranges and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, as is... As you begin to learn about Bitcoin and you try, to, you, you try to answer that question, what is Bitcoin and or why is this thing valuable at all? And that question takes you, you know, down a lot of rabbit holes, but I would say takes you down to this sort of fundamental starting place because it's there that you see how it influences so many other things. As we say, fix the money, fix the world, right? Or we say Bitcoin fixes this. And a lot of people think that's kind of just a, a cliche or a tagline. And of course it is tongue in cheek some of the time, but you know, I think a lot of us are very sincere in that it, it rectifies things on such a fundamental level that it's downstream salute. The, the, the solutions that are affected downstream are almost automatic. And that's why we say, you know, Bitcoin fixes this, but I'd like to start at the beginning of civilization, basically, <laughs> because I think it's, it's interesting how all the different institutions, be they, you know, of government and, and otherwise, have been influenced by property. And, and perhaps the, the most significant attribute of property being its viability. And so the degree to which the property that we've used to orient civilization and to transact with one another, so I, and, and in its most distilled form, let's say money, 
The degree to which that has been viable, maybe because it needs to be centralized to be protected or for some other reason, has greatly influenced how society and institutions and governance has emerged. And so I'm sure you've thought about, you know, things on this level. And I'd like to open it up with a very broad toss over to you and say, what do you think of that premise? And what are your, if you have any additional thoughts on it? Um, so, so, and I know where you're going with specifically, uh, specifically money or, or is, or is that as, as property or property rights? Um, I would, I would tend to start, um, in a different spot if I thought about kind of physics and who we are in the grand scheme of, uh, of things. Um, uh, if that's okay. Uh, and we'll, Absolutely. We'll, um, so, so if you think about um, us, um, in general, human species, what we really are is energy, limited energy, storage, um, limited storage and limited compute. That's what our brains are. That's what our, that's what our human body is. Um, and we're on an ever increasing search for finding more energy so we can do more things, more storage so we can do more things and more compute. Um, and linking that, linking that together is, is trust at which we call money exchange that links us together, our limited energy storage and compute and links us together to form a supercomputer. And, and that, and that supercomputer can do more things together through the division of labor and we get more done and we solve more problems. And from the beginning of time, from gathering in, 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 in tribes or small groups, um, to be able to hunt and protect the kids would be an example of doing things together so that we could have higher living standards. Um, and if you've run that throughout time and, and why, why you can actually see that, you can see that in our cities today. Um, and this is, uh, th this will go, it's going to be a roundabout how I'm going to get here, <laughs> but, but you can see, you can see in our cities today around that where, where you have trust in money, which is just the exchange holding that supercomputer together and a large city, you have more supercompute. You have more ideas, you have more idea generation. And as a result, you have higher standards of living and people move to those cities to be able to create, uh, to, 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 to reach into that higher standard of living and where you have small towns, at least historically, you don't have as much people, many or many people holding that supercomputer together and you have less compute, less opportunity in the small towns. Now, you can also see the power law that exists, kind of lar that scaling of larger cities as a result, and then smaller cities, smaller cities down to regional t towns. And you can see effectively throughout history what, what those larger cities created because there's just more people combined. Um, and, 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 and then if you, if you, inverse that and you say what about a large city with no trust in, in money you can see what that looks like and they and they, you lose the supercompute you lose the thing gluing us together and so 
that's that's one axis that's ha- kind of happening throughout time. And then what we do with as we find more energy or higher forms of energy, we use our limited uh, what we have in our own bodies is limited energy that we have to sleep. We move that into uh, into machines that do more labor um, with that more energy, higher pr- and and that and that increases living standards. What we do with more storage, um, so th- so we're constantly looking for more energy, uh, higher forms of energy, more storage. Store our, our limited storage through the printing press became uh, increased that storage massively. Right. And it increased the compute against the storage because now more brains could look back at the books and increase the supercomputer speed. Um, and so that evolutionary trend of, of looking for ways to solve problems faster through, through linking us together in that, to form that supercomputer to find higher forms of energy, more storage and more compute is really what we are. Um, and some of that required, um, and, and because the cities and power grids and, and telephone lines and such required centralization, some of that required centralization of, of certain aspects to be able to actually keep that going. But that centralization also created a, a um, risk in if the, if the centralized power went out in the city, you had the supercomputer go down, right? and so you had risk in that in, in that uh, whole thing. And so today, what's happening, and it's just this, that's why it's so hard to see, um, because we're living in a system that is actually doing that, and actually now we're able to decentralize some of those actions. We don't need to be in the city anymore to tie into the supercompute of human intelligence. What we're doing right now on this uh, on on this Zoom call um, that can reach millions of people is creating more ideas, more idea exchange that that is a ba- is is now I don't have to be in a city. I could be anywhere in the world satellite communication with when we get to it bitcoin mining could provide power and 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 and, and me to find stranded energy to create essentially civilization anywhere and tie mm-hmm. into the supercomputer of the world without needing the city. So those things those those major changes, like the printing press, which increased increased the the amount of storage, or like any energy transition, or like any compute transition, have massive changes to society. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, and I think that's a a, a great first principles uh, analogy to use. And it's interesting, you know, because basically what this software is eating the world sort of theme, this digitization of the world is allowing that concentrated form of the supercomputer that previously was only capable of, you know, evolving in densely populated physically areas because you get that, you know, uh, additional amount of exchange and idea exchange and value exchange and all that kind of stuff is now moving into the digital world. So as you say, you'll be able to tap into it anywhere. You know, and if you can add the other constituents of what you need to flourish in those area, i.e. electricity, tapping into the information, food, et cetera, then uh, perhaps you'll be able to derive the same benefit that was once only available in those densely populated physical locations anywhere. 
And it'll be really interesting to see what kind of preference shift we see as a result of that. You know, some people are still going to want to live where there's a lot of physical activity, you know, to be, to be had, but stands to reason that at least some people's preferences will say, well, I'd, I want all that benefit, but I want to live in a, a, a larger, more natural, more peaceful, less densely populated, you know, cleaner environment. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and that shift will take place over a long t- uh, time period. Um, mm-hmm. but, but it, it will absolutely take, uh, take place uh, because today it can, and before, and, and, and it, in our recorded history, it couldn't. People moved yeah. to the cities to, um, to, to, to produce more value mm-hmm. and, 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 and they had lower living standards outside of the cities. So more people moved to the cities from, and, and the opportunity just kept on growing in the cities because there were more ideas. Um, and, and another thing tied into this, right. And, and throughout time, knowledge was power. Um, today with an internet connection, you have the world's knowledge, um, it's probably too much because you could get to literally any person on the planet, um, any PhD, any person you can learn. If you, if you, if you design your time, right, you can learn, uh, learn anything you want on any, on any subject. Um, and in historically that wasn't the case. The people closest to the, uh, to, to the knowledge uh, of the day, whether it was the church or, 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 um, or in the printing pre- uh, closest to the books and the libraries had more knowledge. Um, and then it trickled out over a long period of time to society today. And it's not just one way knowledge. That's the, uh, that's probably the most important thing. Even what we do in this space, it's not me saying one thing and then other people just agreeing with that one thing. It's the idea exchange that makes the idea itself better in real time that people get to get to watch and contribute to. So they become active contributors to the knowledge gain and beneficiaries from the knowledge gain. Yeah, absolutely agree again. You know, one of the, when I'm thinking about this, uh, why it is that you get this value add in these densely populated areas, as we said, is because you get not only the idea exchanges, but far more significantly is the the actions associated with those ideas, right? Because those actions are when value is expressed. And every time value is expressed, you know, every time a trade takes place, value is created, right? Because you wouldn't engage in it if there wasn't a, you know, an an output that exceeded the combination of the inputs, basically, in terms of value. And the reason why I initially framed it in terms of the viability of property is because given that money is as you said, the glue that holds all that together, that allows those, the communications of actions and value and that signal to propagate in order to uh, facilitate all those exchanges, it itself becomes extremely valuable. And that is, of course, why that's what everyone seeks, right? They seek more money to engage in all those activities. But the flip side of that is everyone seeking it in, let's say, voluntary, you know, voluntary um, or consensual means that by virtue of its appeal, there's also going to be people that seek access to it, let's say, in, in more malevolent ways, in less, less fair ways. They're going to try to game the system. And I think one of the interesting things, and I don't think the viability of property had changed much over the last 5,000 years. Let's say, you know, civilization got started and, and gold was the store of value. 
and you get the strong king or strong tribe to protect the gold and the strong fortress around that. And depending upon, you know, the circumstances of the environment and how well things are administered, you sink or the civilization sinks or swims on that basis. But gold was kind of the most concentrated store of value. And either that or derivatives of it allowed for all that exchange to take place, which allowed the flourishing to happen. But now we seem to be at a place where, and I'd love to get your take on, do you think the confluence of, or perhaps not the confluence, but the emergence of uh, digital landscapes, you know, the, the, let's say the last 30 years, to put it simply, represented a technological shift that meant that we could know, we, we, we could no longer extend, how should I put this? Give me one second. Let's say we met the limits of the, the previous property that we used to facilitate all this exchange. And so what I think is happening now is, and, and you've referenced before how, you know, Bitcoin allows us to, to achieve money velocity without credit, basically. And that's like a, you know, a very big deal. And so I'll get you to touch on that, but just simply put that what we've used to increase money velocity, let's say, broadly speaking, over the last 30 years has introduced the ability or has introduced a vulnerability for via, being able to violate the money, being able to game the system effectively. And so in conjunction with that, now we have something that is, if the former is um, near absolutely viable, and I'm referring to fiat money here, and Bitcoin represents a shift that is near absolutely inviolable, we seem to be, those two things are coming to a head. And that seems to me to be a tremendous civilizational shift because, again, that little crack of viability, whether it existed in small part when we were on a gold standard and in much larger part now that we're on a fiat standard, that door has kind of been closed. And so to what extent has the world around us that we perceive and that we're acting in now been built up by the former and will be dissolved by the latter. And that's kind of why I framed it that way in the beginning. And I think, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it conflicts with your characterization. I think it, it's just to say, what are the environmental factors that mean that the former form of the, the former instrument that facilitated that exchange that allows for flourishing, what causes that to no longer be viable for the circumstance, the technological circumstances that prevail. And I think that's kind of the transition, transition that we're in right now. So, so when, let's, let's go back deeper into this instead of the last 30 years to, um, and, and kind of uh, talk through what that would look like throughout time. So my thesis that I wrote about in, in, in the book was technology is deflationary. And, and really, it's technology creates productivity, and that productivity creates deflation. Mm -hmm. In a normal free market, you, you would see prices coming down every, every year on everything, literally forever. Um, but we've never experienced that, at least humans haven't experienced that for a long period of time. And, and, why, and, and if you go back further than kind of this recent uh, this recent event on what we're dealing with now, if you go back further, technology has always been deflationary. Um, and, and so, so what would it look like if, if the world never had something that, that would allow that deflation to reach the broadest possible society? 
what would it look like in a different different world? And what it would look like is typically finding the hardest money, gold, then building a credit-based system on top of the gold so that, so that you could gain velocity of money, so you could trade with more people because it was hard to move gold around. And as soon as you introduced that, um, then you introduced an, an ability to cheat into the system mm -hmm. to create inflation against that, pro that process. <laughs> but technology would have historically moved a lot slower. So what would you would have seen is currencies break down every five or 600 years. And then you would see currency as technology was moving faster, printing press, the likes, steam engine, you would see currencies breaking down, breaking down every 200 years. And as technology was moving faster and faster, you'd see currencies breaking down 100 years. And then you'd see them breaking down 50 years. And so what we have as a result of looking back through time is you will see exactly what you would expect to see if my thesis was correct. And then you'd see inside that system abuses of the system over time getting to long debt cycles where the debt couldn't re be repaid and then society is going to war to settle the debt and reset the, it on a new system and then saying we promise we won't do it again and then then entering the same same system because because human nature is so is such that we want the free lunch um, and mm -hmm. so it's really easy for the leader, for our leaders to take advantage of, uh, of that human nature. We never had a system. We never had a system that we didn't have control of that was outside of, uh, 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 so all of our recorded history on that system would look the same. And, and, and I think that's all that's happening. I think that that's the, that what Bitcoin is, is that decentralization and secure enshrines, enshrines rules in society that we've never been to able to enshrine that were encoded, right? Mm -hmm. So we were able to enshrine them with, with the Magna Carta, which gave rights to individual rights and freedoms. We were able to enshrine them with Bill of Rights, Constitution, which were really great documents. But they were below the, below the level of money. And so those documents, because the free market is more powerful than any centralized market, because there's more ideas competing, those documents gave those markets with free markets way a bigger advantage in trade, a bigger advantage in creating things that increase living standards. But, the, but what happens is those, those documents were really protecting, protecting us from the institution but the money is always superordinate to the institution and the institution over, over time gets taken over by the people with money. And so you see the same thing throughout history that the institution gets corrupted by the money. Um, and then, and, and then it, it's, and, and then those individual rights and freedoms go away in favor of the institution. And, and effectively as that happens, living standards have to go down. Yeah. I agree. And I want to, I want to get into the social impacts of that manipulation in a second, but that's actually exactly the point I was attempting to make, um, by talking about the, how viability influences the political domain and general, and as a result, the structure of society generally, because as you say, in the past, you know, whether it's the Magna Carta or Hammurabi's code or whomever, yeah. 
only matters if the authority can enforce them, right? And so th that means that the society necessitates or requires that powerful entity to enforce those rules. And by virtue of everyone acquiescing or agreeing to that quote unquote social contract, they ascribe to that authority a tremendous amount of power. And then of course you just, history is basically just the elaboration of that power structure and then the abuse of it. And then it's disintegration and then an attempt to, you know, reform it once again. But we always run into that problem where we could never organize ourselves, be it politically or even in relation to money, because, you know, as you say, who, he who has the gold makes the rules, right? That, that's another, you know, yeah. uh, famous axiom. And it's because the one who has the authority to enforce rules also has the authority and the power to take from people at will. Now, of course, these things play out competitively. And so rulers come to appreciate, well, if I tax 90% of my population, then everything's going to go to hell pretty quickly. So you try to negotiate a balance between how you balance the power and how much abuse of that power there is by the one who has the authority and what the, the populace is willing to put up with. And there's an interesting element there that we can get into later, which is how much is that dynamic influenced by what the population knows is being taken from them, right? Because we've in the fiat era, that has been obfuscated a lot. But the, 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 the real fascinating point here is just now in Bitcoin, we have something where, again, common trope rules without rulers, where we've never had the capacity to assert authority around a rule set absent a central power. And again, the, 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 yep. the consistent, the inevitable corruption of that central power pretty much constituted human history up to this point. And now we're saying we have a rule set around the thing that, as you say, is subordinate to the political, which is money. We have the ability to enforce a rule set, rule set on the thing that's most consequential for human interaction, human flourishing, quality of life, that is impervious to the pitfalls of former structures of authority and, and governance. And that just, well, yeah, again, and, that, that changes the course of history is, I guess, the point I'm making. And, and, it, and it does. And, and when you're down this rabbit hole, when you understand um, why that is and, and, and why that can't be changed on Bitcoin and why it's the first time in history that's ever happened, you, you start to realize is all of our historical records, everything that we trust in a historical re re record has to be biased towards what it looked like in a different world because it never never existed and and that has implications for today on what people believe so if you grow, grew up believing in in the, the institutions could be trusted then you'll likely believe that 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 those institutions are, are should be trusted today and that's why I, I, I try to break this down into real sim sim simply first principles um, in why is inflation required for a productive society? And, and you'll find it isn't. And so, so you, I could ask it differently. Um, why, um, why is theft of your money or, or a transfer of your money to somebody else required for a productive society? And then if you, if, if, if you believe it is right, then, then ask yourself why, and people, it might be, people won't buy if there's no inflation, 
ask yourself, do you buy a, a phone? Would do you buy food? Do you buy? So of course you buy things that get cheaper each year, and and you you buy because because they value in the time that you choose to to buy them, and so it doesn't. So some of the things we've been taught based on inflation is required for a productive society are completely false, but a whole bunch of believe, people believe them, and they believe them because the institution has told them that. And that, so then you have to ask yourself, if society was built on, on a theft in, 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 in your money or in, in trust or supply, society was built on mistrust at the root of trade of everything, what would the emergent complex behavior of society look like? And you would see exactly what we see today. You could see greater division, greater uh, greater us versus them, ex um, catapulting around the world. That, that has to get greater because the because the, the misinformation and money or the manipulation and money has to get exponentially greater to control the to for, so the existing system doesn't collapse, and 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 that has massive compl uh, complications. So. I, I just kind of go to because I have many, many friends who have not quite been able to see this because they trust the law. They trust the institutions because it's provided them a really great life. So it's hard for them to question um, what's underneath that trust. Yeah. And, you know, the perhaps irony is the, the wrong word. The There's a certain well, irony or poetic justice or however you want to characterize it to these large scale shifts that before the solution is obvious or apparent, the, the system that it's replacing reaches its zenith, basically, yeah. and almost definitionally. And I think that's a big part of the reason why such paradigm shifts are, are so difficult to spot. And as you say, it's easy to... Uh, isolate what we're talking about and think that it doesn't bleed into things. But as you said, if there was manipulation of the money happening at such a large scale, and this goes back to the point I made a second ago about the degree of obfuscation that, that is a, that, that takes place under, let's say, you know, so if it was under a gold standard era and the king or the emperor had to confiscate all the coins, clip them, shrink them, mix them with some other metals, that was a far more obvious approach to the manipulation. And as a result, the, the political consequences were so much greater. And I mean, directed at the, poli the, the politicians, let's say. But if that is happening surreptitiously, right, if people are using paper currencies and the value can be siphoned away just by increasing the, the nominal number of those, the nominal amount of, of those currencies, then people can feel, as you say, they operate in a system where they're feeling increasingly disenfranchised, where they're feeling increasingly like they don't have the capacity to express value in the market. And as a result, they don't have the capacity to accrue value in the market. They can feel that that's being diminished. And, of, and they're, they're absolutely witnessing the products of that out in day-to-day -day life and in the, the inequality and the, the polarization and all those things that you mentioned. But it's so hard to identify the source. And, that, and I think that's what contributes to the polarization because there's this feeling of anxiety as a result of this process that's happening beneath the surface and the mind, you know, people's minds can't help but say, oh, it must be 
that cause or yep. that cause or that cause or that cause because they can't see the 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 true cause of that feeling that they're feeling and as a result you get some people identifying that cause you get some people identifying that cause and this is what causes the division and the polarization yep ex exactly right if you have misinformation if we are all connected every one of us on the planet is connected through this trade if you look at any supply chain if you look at what that looks like we are connected and we're connected for search for higher living standards if we are all connected with through and, and I've extensively traveled as you have, when you meet people wherever they are in the world, you see same exactly the same hope streams. Once you mm -hmm. get down below the layer of what uh, what the political class would tell you about a, a certain country or what that looks like, when you actually meet the people anywhere, similar hope streams for their families, for their futures, and we, we're all connected through that through that trust. If you have misinformation or mistrust in that, and you have ex exploding misinformation, then as a byproduct, we must be disconnected. It, it forces it. And everybody believes mm -hmm. that they know the reason, the specific reason. You could actually even argue for us here, do we know the reason or are we being manipulated in it as well? Like you'd have to take yourself out of sure. that situation and realize and look at the first principles to, to see if you were being manipulated too. Um, but everyone would be looking through that misinformation of the system that is a requirement of the system to survive. And they would all be looking through that same misinformation. So virtually everybody, everybody in that system would be looking for, I know the answer for the fix for the system. And it's easier to believe, it's easier to believe in, in people problems rather than system problems. Mm -hmm. So if that's easier to believe, you put a face on an, on somebody who you think is evil or good, then it's really easy to manipulate us to be able to keep the system going and divide us all being connected all over the world to us being disconnected and fighting and, 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 and fighting one another. That's really what the what what that 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 turns to. That's what I was I explored in my book. I, you know this. I think you know this. But um, when I wrote the us versus them chapter, because you could just forecast what would happen to society as you broke this this bond and you were transitioning to a new society, some people questioned why would he write that? Because that was before <laughs> we saw a lot of what we see today. But it's a perfectly predictable consequence of, of, uh, of manipulating money. Yeah, I agree. And, and the other, well, I'm sure there's many other components to that. But one of them is when you're placed in that situation where you're feeling increasingly disenfranchised, to, you know, to put it simply, let's say your purchasing power is being taken from you and kind of in a, in a way that's surreptitious. Um, you you're placed in an increasingly dire sort of circumstance. And so you're looking for an increasingly rapid way out of it. And as you say, pointing at, you know, another person who you disagree with or you dislike, or you think is the cause of that is just, it, it uh, it's an approach that appeals to, you know, the emotions that are stirred up in one far more than, as you say, looking at a systems approach and saying, you know, what, what do we need to change systemically that can rectify the situation that I'm in? 
And of course, I mean, you got to have a ton of empathy for that perspective, you know, not least because we all get emotional from time to time and we were, we're emotional creatures, right? And so it's hard to suspend that and to engage your logical, rational mind to find solutions, especially when, you know, they may not be as expedient as, well, the emotional solution, as I think we both agree, is not really a solution, but it seems like one and it seems to be the most expedient approach. And when you tell people that, you know, the approach is deeper than, and the problem is deeper than you're considering, and the solution is going to require more time to resolve, well, a lot of people are placed in a state because of all this where they're, you know, to use a Bitcoin term, they have a very high time preference for all these things. And as a result, they're going to choose the solutions that, the supposed solutions that cohere with that high time preference. And what we're talking about here is, you know, and I think there's a, there's a finer point that people can opt into this solution today if they want. So in a sense, it can happen. They can start on that path very quickly, but broad brushstrokes, you know, the system as a whole is going to take time to fix. And, you know, you need to accept that. You need to accept and have patience for how big of an issue, how big of a problem it is that is trying to be corrected here by fixing the money and accept that it's it's not going to be voting in the person that you think is good and voting out the, be- the person you think is evil. And then in the next two years, or the next four years, everything is going to be better. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a much bigger game at play here. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's, it's just worth saying, why won't that work? Right. So just really simply why that won't work. And I know you know this, but many of your listeners don't um, is because, because the system is already far past insolvency you can't mm. grow past you can't grow to pay back the debt so the debt so the only way you can solve that you can solve that problem by allowing the system cl- to collapse and when people talk about deflation or deflationary spiral what they're really talking about is credit that couldn't be paid back turns into a cycle that collapses the entire system but in that if if governments chose that option and they might be in some cases they might be forced to um, but uh, if they every bank would collapse, um, the, the the thing that people think is money is not. It's just it's it's other people's credit, and the counterparty risk of that is leveraged so much that the entire inside, entire society collapses. So you know, governments, even if they tighten for a little while, you know they're going to have to come in and and print more, and they're going to have to drive greater and greater inflation rate said this on many podcasts because when you get to this cycle people might not notice somebody coming in and stealing two percent of their things out of their house each year Mm. but at 10 or 15 percent stealing out of their house each year they start to notice and they start to question that trust that we talked about before what's going on and they're they're easily swayed to the another part political party that says oh yeah it's that political party's fault and we're going to do something different, but the entire thing, because it's a structural problem, can't be solved without way higher inflation for a long time, which drives society to the break, or to deflationary collapse, which destroys the entire basis of, of all the foundations. So there is no door number three out of that system. Um, <clears throat> what door number three is out of that system, and it always is, it's war. Because you 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 have to you have to go inward and you turn you go inward and you create national nationalistic pride to be able to 
convince somebody enough people in your country that it's the other people's fault <clears throat> and then that can't solve the problem so you have to create a greater enemy outside your borders and so that's unfortunately door number three out of the existing system is the is is where we're moving to at an escalating rate um and there's a parallel path that's a new system that's that's the, the emergent complex behavior on the new system is completely different than the existing system. Mm. And it's a different frame of the reference to the world. And it's getting, and it's growing really fast. Um, that would give, and all people have to do is walk across the bridge, open their curiosity. And it's a nonviolent pro, uh, protest to be able to create a better world for them and their kids. It's a, and, and, but I don't think most people, because they're in the system, they're measuring their houses by this system. They're measuring everything by that system, their food on the shelves, their, um, their friends, every, every aspect of their life is in the other system. So it's hard to see it. And so it becomes a measurement problem. You're measuring the system by the error code of the system. And it's hard to see the new system emerging. So I, I have empathy for people going through that because they can't see the world that you and I see because we've, un we understand down, we understand the plumbing of both systems. We understand. And then in other words, you can intuit what the new system will look like as, as it reaches more people and how mm -hmm. positive and hopeful that is. And you can start to, and you start to live in that world and you see more hope and you see it around you and it's exploding. Mm -hmm. And so, but I do have complete empathy for what people who haven't made that transition, who haven't gone through the work to understand what the new system would look like, what they would be dealing uh, would, with, what they would be dealing with. Yeah. You know, it's, life is so funny. You know, what we're, what we're describing here, I mean, and what you, what you characterize or described on a nation state level where things get really bad, there's a lot of unrest, the political uh, leaders, you know, find a scapegoat external and that's how you create this, you know, nation state versus nation state conflict and war and stuff. I mean, it's just kind of a fractal reflection of what happens with an individual, right? Totally. An individual says, oh, the problem's not with me. It's not my responsibility to fix it. You know, it's, I don't need to turn inward. The, the problem and the solution is outward. And I, I, you get wrapped up in that. And that's what leads to bad outcomes when, as you said, I mean, really, and again, I have a ton of empathy too, because it's not obvious right now to most people, but what's put in front of people is just a simple choice, it's just a simple choice, right? Do you want to devote yourself increasingly, you know, the, the products of your former labor, i.e. your money and your, you know, what you do with your time and your interactions to one system or another? Like how serious are you about actually changing your circumstance and the circumstance for others and the one that you perhaps are critical of. And I would even uh, go, I'd, I'd even go deeper than, than, than that. you're exactly right, but even go de deeper. If you realize that the system as it stands today is based on theft or fraud or manipulation, then you have a choice to, that will impact your life and the life of your kids and the life of everyone, you know, to, to keep on building towards that system and spend all your time in that system based on, on, on a theft, mm. or you have a choice to build it based on base, build a based on system based on truth. Mm -hmm. What do you think the emergent complex behavior of society will look like 
if our system is based on truth. And, and so I, I, for the life of me understanding that, so again, I have empathy, but if you actually just ask that question, is it okay to steal? And if it is okay to steal, and if all of our uh, institutions are based, it's okay to steal. What do you think society would look like? Mm. Um, it's it's impossible not to come to the conclusion that it's not okay to say. Maybe it is for some people, but <clears throat> we have the power to change our world. We have all it takes is moving over, and the world changes. And yeah. Do we want a world based on truth, or do we want a bit world based on on a fraud? It's that simple. Mm -hmm. And I think even even people like us and Bitcoiners <clears throat> have to remember that that decision has to be made by each individual. And, and the only one that really can be made is not, do I want to live in a system based on truth? I mean, I know what you mean, of course, and that would be the result if we were in a hyper Bitcoinized world, let's say, but the only decision you really can make is, do I not want to be stolen from? Not, do I want to live in a system where people aren't stolen from? And they're kind of one and the same if it's adopted more broadly, right? But each, like the, every person out there today you know, because there'll be pushback, right? There'll be people saying, oh, like that's never going to happen or it's too risky or, and there's a lot of kind of Stockholm syndrome stuff going on, I would say, where people rationalize and justify the state of the existing system because there's too much discomfort associated with uh, believing it's otherwise, perhaps for the responsibility that would be placed on themselves. I mean, I think that's that's at least a part of the resistance here is that we have you know, broadly speaking, society today has been so conditioned to uh, delegate responsibility for so many things to institutions and people and forces and authority outside of themselves. And so when you tell them another system is possible, one where you are, you know, not quote unquote stolen from, although again, people would have, I think, uh, push back on that language a bit, but it's daunting because you get that through taking more responsibility for yourself. You get that through not relying on the bank, let's say, not relying on the FDIC, let's say, not relying on external sources for authority and security and ultimately for your freedom. And I think the reason why the, you know, the whole Stockholm syndrome phenomenon exists in the first place is because people like convenience, people like to be taken care of, people like to not be responsible for some of the most important things in their lives as, as, you know, as unfortunate it is to say something like that. But I think that's, that's part of the reason because you make an extremely strong case. And I mean, you specifically, like you you articulate these ideas very well, but there's still some, some disbelief or some sort of blockage where people don't fully, they don't, I guess they don't fully believe that what you're saying is, can be true. And, and, you know, as a result, I think they, stay in the current system longer than perhaps they otherwise would if they, I don't know, is, is faith an aspect of it? I mean, I know this is all math and code and verifiable, but at the end of the day, nobody really knows how this plays out on a macro. So you have to kind of believe in the principles. Yeah, so, so when you say nobody knows, um, and this is again, this, the system change, if you understand, um, that the measurement of everything is from a system. And so, so, so in other words, you can't measure the new system, right? You have to intuit the new system. 
you have to say, what would things look like in a system that you couldn't change? What would a system? And, and, and there's just a whole, there's so much in what I just said that it's because what I, what I see most times is people carrying the baggage from one system into the new system. And they're scared of the new system because of the baggage they're carrying from the old system. And so they're, they're, they think it'll operate with similar rules and it operates completely different. And so that what they do is what you just said, or what some people do is what you just said. I'm just going to hide in the existing system. I'm going to just stay because I'm scared. Or, or the existing system is going to shut that down. Right? And, and, and that'll give them an excuse to stay. But, but we all, again, every single thing in the world is created by us creating the world we live in, live in all of the ideas reaching uh, it, it is that connection of all of us creating the world that we want to live in and all of the things that in fact technology is just a broad-based descriptor of our ideas right? creating better ways of life for us if we choose to use them and so we're in control and 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 by the way that's a super powerful idea because what it means is there is no they, right? There is us, all of us. And if enough people start to choose, the world changes. Um, and nothing can stop this. This system is, this new system is providing immensely more value to billions of people. And it's gaining, it's gaining speed on a network effect. And, and I, I know we talked about this the other day, but one of uh, one of the things on this network effect is the true definition of a network effect and the same thing that takes down many monopolies in, in over time is a network effect pr uh, produces each new user of the system creates more value for all the users so a telephone if, if i'm the only one with the telephone it's useless but if you have a telephone it's more valuable for both of us and if somebody else has a telephone more valuable for all three of us somebody else more valuable for all four of us internet the uh, internet itself is the biggest network effect we've ever had and many of the companies on top of it are our network effects that add increasing value to all all users but the problem today and the problem similarly for the us dollar and similarly for google or youtube or any of these massively powerful network effects that were network effects that satisfied that get to a point because centralization where they have to where they're so big that every new user makes the system weaker for all other users because they have to choose who get who wins who loses so that's what the us dollar system looks to like today and it used to have a strong robust network effect and um and yes some people lost because of that network effect but many people gained all over the world because of that network effect and now it's having the exact opposite um effect and so What's different about Bitcoin and like the Lightning Network is that network, and because it's decentralized and secure at the base layer, it gains that network effect forever while retaining the decentralization and security. What that means is every new user, every single one, makes that network stronger for all new users. So as you saw today, a large chain store in South Africa just brought on 
uh, just brought on lightning payments for all of their all of their stores. I think fifty three stores open, moving out to five hundred stores over the next couple months. Um, that means all, now a whole bunch of people on Bitcoin can now buy different things inside South Africa at this store, and there's an incentive now for them to shop at that store instead of a different store. And so you're going to add more and more people and more and more nodes and more and more stores. And that's happening all over the world. And that network effect is actually driving on a system of truth, hope and abundance that drives drives the world into a better place. But it keeps on going. It keeps on going forever because it remains decentralized and secure instead of creating massive monopolies that rent seek on top of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said, and, and, and totally agree, as I'm often saying in this conversation. But, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's a great point that, and I think why so many people in this space think in a first principles type of manner. And it's interesting, it's not just first principles of a technology or system, but it's also first principles of principles, is, which is kind of what you were just uh, articulating, which is which principles are the ones that you think are most operable, more, m- most conducive? To a flourishing, peaceful, abundant society and individual lives. Do you think they are the principles or values of truth, of freedom, of fairness, of honesty? If you think those are what, and I think if you look at history, there's at least been the recognition of the value of those principles, both in philosophy, theology, and even in the political domain. I mean, these these uh, these codified rule sets that we alluded to earlier, they attempted to implement in some cases, I mean, none of them were perfect perhaps, but they attempted to codify those principles that throughout millennia of human interaction were revealed to be the ones that are most conducive to peaceful flourishing, let's say. And those were honesty, fairness, treating everyone as equals and all of that. Um, as we said, the problem is you needed a central authority to enforce those rules. We've been exploring how Bitcoin offers another approach to that. But simply to say, you know, when, when, when you're attempting to explain to people the differences of the system that they currently operate in and the one that's now available in Bitcoin, uh, I think that's, that's a, re- a, a very difficult one to disagree with. Now, the point of contention would, of course, be characterizing the current system as one that is not founded on those principles. Because I think a lot of people today would say, hey, look at our democracies, look at the founding documents of these countries, look at our, you know, the rights and freedoms that we have. And so I disagree with you that they're not founded on that. But at a minimum, perhaps we might be able to convince people that at least in relation to money, let's forget all the other you know, governance debates there is to be had. But at least in relation to money, do you not think that everyone should be treated the same? Do you not think that involuntarily or non-consensually taking someone's money via inflation, let's say, we won't even get into the tax argument, but via inflation, do you think that's right or wrong? And do you think a system that enshrines the, you know, basically the inability for that to take place, so treating all all nodes on the network, all users, all individuals as the same and not ascribing to anyone greater rights or privileges, do you think that one would be more conducive to a peaceful, flourishing society? Point was just, I think they would agree to that, but there's a hurdle between agreeing in principle on the principle and then acting it out in your life. I mean, and that's a, 
I mean, that's a, that's something that we all face, right? To what degree do our actions cohere with the principles that we agree are, are most valid? You know, that's kind of the struggle of each individual to try to close that gap. But I, I do think that taking that first principles approach to explaining the differences between these systems is a good starting place and is a, a place where there's probably less contention. Yeah, I, I agree. Like simple, simple constructs that can get people to question. Because if you're in a if you're in a system that like the the fish doesn't know what a mountain is, right? If you're in a system that and you're measuring everything uh, from that system, there's you can't see the new system. You measure everything by that system. Um. And, and inside that, inside that, you said something that just triggered me. Like we measure ourselves by our intentions, but we measure everyone else around us by their actions. So we can easily say, well, we would do that in a different thing because we know ourselves and we think about ourselves all the time. We only see the, the top of the ice, the uh, top of the iceberg or the actions of other people. And we measure them by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. And so it, it, it um, and so we, do, if if we measured ourselves by our actions, um, that might look differently. Right? It might it might it might look way different because we wouldn't be able to see we that incongruence that you just laid out would be would be sitting so strong that you'd have to make a change. Um, because if it, if it felt like you were making the world more unsafe with your actions instead of your intentions you would be forced to change. So if you measured yourself by your actions instead of your intentions, it would force that change, but we don't. We we we'd say what we would would do, what we what we want to do, not what we do. Totally agree. And it, I think that's one of the many phenomena, circumstances, aspects of going down the bitcoin rabbit hole that you're you're kind of confronted with you know, not everybody, of course, uh, but you're confronted with those sorts of realizations because when you, when you're attempting to understand something that's so a paradigm shift, let's say, um, it involves much more than just the technology. It's very much how you see the world. And, and, you know, we're, we've been talking about this sort of how much obfuscation there is in the system to allow this to take place. And, and you've been referencing a lot lately it's a fruitless effort. It's a, it's a, you know, waste of effort effectively and actually probably makes things worse to try to solve the system from within the system, right? It, you know, it seems absurd on its face, but it's, you know, John Verveke is a cognitive scientist. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he, and he's a brilliant guy, philosopher. I've, I've had some really interesting discussions with him, but he uses the analogy of glasses, right? So when you have your glasses on, you're not seeing the glasses, you're seeing through the glasses, you're seeing through the lens. And that, I think that's such a apt metaphor for what's happening today because, and you, you could take it a, a number of ways, of course, but even if you want to look at it, the currency unit, I think people are, you know, if you're seeing through the US dollar, if you're seeing through the fill in the blank fiat currency, then almost definitionally, you're, you're not going to ascribe the distortions that it produces that you're seeing out in the world to the thing by which you're seeing. You're too close to it. But when you swap that out, and let's say your, your, your glasses are now the Bitcoin glasses, now you're seeing all the distortion out in the world, but you're seeing it through, or, or sorry, you're more able to see the cause of it because you're, you, you've swapped out the lens and you can see that, oh, 
the, the, the method by which I was seeing before is a huge part of the problem. And that's why the distortion, to the extent I was able to see it, I wasn't able to tra trace it back to the proper cause. And when you change that lens, you're able to see it so much more clearly, which is why I think a lot of people, when they start to understand Bitcoin, it's not just money and economics that they start to have more clarity on. It's a variety of things, as, as we've been discussing thus far in this conversation, whether it be politics or, uh, you know, business and entrepreneurship or, you know, social issues of various kinds, history. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're able, it provides you a different lens. And I'm not going to assert that it's necessarily a pristine lens. You know, perhaps there's no perfectly clear way to see the world, but it certainly seems that it allows you to, to see the distortions of the prior lens. And as a, as a current example of that, as you know, a lot of people decry or criticize Bitcoin's volatility. And then Bitcoiners will kind of tongue in cheek reply, well, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. And then, you know, the person on the other end will kind of uh, roll their eyes and it won't be a very productive conversation. But where, if you're looking through the lens of the US dollar, you're not seeing the fact that the money supply has grown 40% in the last year, right? Because everything has adjusted for that through that same lens. And so you're not able to ascribe that, what you're seeing out in the world to that adjustment. But if, if your lens is Bitcoin, then you can, see, you can see more clearly what's happening in those other lenses and you can see the relationship between them. And then the question becomes, what's the most valid lens to have? Is it one that can be changed and manipulated at will arbitrarily? Well, I think most people would say, no, I don't, I don't want my perception to be, at least my economic perception, let's say, to be grounded in that type of a, a way of seeing a, of a lens. I'd rather it be grounded in an unmanipulatable, a more truthful, a, a more, a clearer lens. And I think people are making that decision en masse now, you know, more every day. Yeah, and I think that's why. So that re, that recent piece I put out, or I put out in August, finding finding signal in a noisy world, and 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 so I'm and like you. You try to find different ways for people, a broad audience, to understand the problem they're facing, where the light can go on. Mm. And so, 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 so that's where I said all money is is information, right? And, and everybody has their different idea for money. I know you run the podcast for ages, what is money? Um, and, uh, and, and, and I remember you asking me that question on our first podcast together. Um, but when I, when I think about that information, I think, and, and I can prove it, because if it wasn't just in information, then a Venezuelan boulevard would be equal to a U.S. dollar. Mm. Right. So I, now, you can, now you can get somebody to say, okay, it's information. And what, what I want out of that information is what, what, um, what I ascribe to the feeling of that money. Right. And that feeling could be safety. That feeling could be, um, it, it, that feeling could be, I'm going to give long after I'm gone, it could be legacy. I'm going to give to my family. It could be a vacation. It could be, it could be a whole bunch of different things. It could be freedom, but it's the feeling that you're looking for out of the money. And all the money is, is a ledger of what you have and, and what you think it'll take you to get what you want. That's all it is. So that's that feeling about what, where you are in the world and what that has. So if you say it's okay to apply misinformation to the information by distorting that, that money, 
and what we were talking about before the trust and so it's that information that is is really the trust the basic basic of all society holding us all together so if you say it's okay to break that misinformation and society's looking on top of that misinformation and everything's automated you could expect everybody to look, be looking through that misinformation that's exactly and that's the glasses you're talking about mm-hmm. and and i'll give you an ex- example so and, and at a high level you can see every single thing we build throughout time is better and better and better and more efficient because we would we throw away the things that are bad Right? They don't work. We, so so we, um, we used to walk and run, then ride horses and drive cars, and, uh, and then airplanes, big airplanes, rocket ships, space travel. Tired is, is, is more and more technology building on top of each other and moving us faster and faster and faster. And that's why technology, because we're building on success of the shoulders of giants that have gone before us. The, the printing press opened up um, a revolution of ideas that allowed Galileo and it to, to be able to spread those ideas and others to be able to spread those ideas that gave way to people like, uh, um, like Einstein and others, Maxwell, uh, um, Faraday, um, countless others that then built other ideas that, are, that, that we live on the shoulders of all of the progress that went before us, and it's moving faster and faster and faster. And so you can see, as, just as a result of that, prices should be coming down everywhere in the world. That productivity gain should be being delivered to us in higher living standards and working less. But the productivity gains from the technology gains are being being stolen. They're being concentrated in very few hands as a result of an inflationary policy that must work counteract against that. They're two totally different forces. So, so they have to. And I saw an interesting stat the other day that coffee production since 1980 has gotten 80 times more efficient. 80 times more efficient in distribution and coffee production and all the technology in coffee produce, production. I, I remember coffee when I, in, in the early eighties was like 25 cents and you can't, you can't go down the store and buy coffee for 20. So, so you can see the productivity gain that should be coming. It should be <laughs> way less than 25 cents and it's been captured Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just one example. There's that type that productivity gain is in energy. That productivity gain is in every single thing we use. Um, and it's not allowed to flow to society in the form of time savings, labor savings. Those are getting extracted at a higher level and centralized to uh, very few people at the top. And there's been a lot of people uh, that have won by it from that transaction, because if you placed your, uh, if you placed your your energy in housing a long time ago housing was went up by that same mechanism as people tried to store those assets and rent seek off other people that didn't have the housing to be able to increase their wealth and so if you bought one house you did okay and if you bought 10 you did better and if you bought a thousand you did you you did better but the people on the other side of that equation the people that were renting the house they had exactly the opposite <laughs> 
feeling. It was, it was it, that that house was going up by their labor, getting weaker and weaker and weaker the entire entire time. Mm-hmm. So when you understand what that system looks like all over the world, and you understand, but in, in, uh, uh, honestly, it doesn't matter because the people that are latest to the game on Bitcoin. Are going. This is going to be the biggest wealth tra- transformation from from the from from the haves to the have-nots the world has ever seen. Um, and if you're late to to the new system, you're ju- um, it, you'll you'll still do well in the new system because prices will come down. Um, mm-hmm. You have no one in the new system has any more more ability to control the system. But you'll see. Um, but it's going to be a massive wealth transfer for uh, from the people who were rent seeking on the old system to, uh, to those who are not on the new. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. And you know, one, before we break in, cause I, I'd like to break into the sort of deflation conversation, but I'd like to ask you to what degree do you think, see, it's tricky, I guess, to determine, um, the rate of productivity incre- increases because it's always relative, right? You go from the horse to the plow versus you go from the fax machine to email. Like, how do you measure the the gain there? It's kind of difficult. But do you think that because we've been talking about how this system has been able to uh, function kind of in in the darkness, do you think the extreme productivity gains that have been made over the last thirty to fifty years? perhaps primarily in the, the domain of software, the digital domain, but of course in all manufacturing processes also. Do you think that's allowed this theft, this uh, siphoning of the productivity gains to be somewhat hidden? Because yeah. even despite the, the theft, you know, your, people are still able to buy a 50-inch TV flat screen plasma for maybe less than it was 10 or 20 years ago because the, the productivity gains of technology I have been so profound that even if you take 90% of the productivity gain from that, which would is supposed to accrue to the purchasing power of, of each individual through their money, even if you take 90% of that, they're still getting a 10% gain and they think, oh, great, things are getting better. They're just not getting near as much better as they could be getting. You just nailed it. That is exactly what's happening. And that's what, so, so the rise of debt or first, first, before the rise of debt, the lower and lower of interest rates to try to grow out of the problem, trying to grow um, GDP in spite of the productivity gains, which was which was taking prices to free in a lot of cases. Like your mm. your your calculator on your phone is free because it's a line of code, um, and that productivity is so uh, so efficient, and that no there's no entrepreneurs that want to go create the new calculator app because there's 50 of them competing for your attention. It's not because you have an, and and similar to many other um, things we use today, like this conference, like this conference technology, because there's Mm -hmm. hundreds of, uh, of companies competing to provide us this um, for, for almost nothing. And so those productivity gains, which are increasing the rate of compute, Right, which are increasing the rate of productivity gains, are being extracted at an incredible rate through first increasing debt, increasing debt, and then that debt can't be paid back. You're, essentially, you were trying to grow out of a problem that you couldn't grow out of. Um, 
and and now to a point where where the the debt is it was always unrepayable in the system, but now it's so outrageous that the only way out is massive is is inflation for a long long time or financial repression. Do you think they'll? This is kind of an aside before we continue on this train of thinking. But do you think they'll attempt broad debt jubilees as a, a means of it? You know, trying to rectify no. this. No, and I and I and I re, and, and, and again, you, you keep going back to they. I knew, I knew yeah. you were going to pick and, up on that. Yeah. <laughs> and, as soon as I said it, I was like, "Shit, I shouldn't use they again." <laughs> and who, who? So let's say let's say tomorrow everybody says, "Okay, the debt's gone. Reset to re, reset to zero. Who 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 retains the assets? So if I had a thousand houses and the debt's all gone, do I keep all the assets? Yeah. Or if uh, or if a country, same thing for a country, for a nation state, do they keep all the assets that uh, that they have in other countries and uh, and such? So no, there's no way that this is going to happen through a de- de- uh, debt reset. Or probability is so small that it's not worth it for me thinking about. Um, I think though at a at a at a way higher level. What's happening today is, um, if you look at the Triffin dilemma, um, so what worked for the US dollar effectively meant they had to be the financer of the world, or so they, they, they use dollars around the world. And, and, and effectively, they got vendor financing that they never had to pay back, where they got to pay back in, in keep on destroying the, the the dollar and they pay back the vendor financing and lower in, in in dollars that are worth less and everybody made that trade around around the world including in their energy um and made that trade because it increased their living uh, uh, higher living standards as well to a point where today um U.S. having a, there has to be buyers, so the uh, the global trade balance has to equal zero, and so there has to be buyers and there has to be sellers. It's just really that that simple, mm. and so with U.S. as the buyer of the world and everybody as the sellers of the world, and the U.S. dollar gets stronger as they tighten to be able to save uh, to save the system, and everyone else gets weaker and their dollars go down, then it creates more. U.S. has to be the buyer of the world, and and other countries are uh, uh, fail faster, um, and and so it actually accelerates that problem. But inside that problem, what it also means is there's no way to keep uh, there's no way to to make let's say chips in the U.S. because it's just not cost competitive to make them in the U.S. So you outsource critical compo- components of of your your military industrial complex to other countries and your entire supply chains to other countries where you pr- produce very real geopolitical risks to, on, uh, on, on that system staying in, intact and, and not and, and another country uh, not emerging and attacking that system. And that's where we are today. And so the world needs a neutral reserve currency. Um, and, and, and could a whole bunch of people get together and say, or could uh, uh, could China and Russia get together and say, okay, we're going to uh, we're going to uh, use gold potentially um, and revalue everything in gold potentially, but they'd have to trust that system, and then they would have to still like they're they're not uh, they're one's not a they're both exporting nations, 
um, you need a purchaser on the other side uh, side of that. So, um, so revaluing the system based on gold is pro um, apart from the trust it would take in nations to be able to do that. It would just kick the can down the road again, and then all other nations would have to agree to that new revaluation. And a lot of those nations don't have gold, so you can't imagine them, them playing that game. Um, um, and well, Bitcoin is acting as a neutral reserve currency, and so and all it takes, and that's what's that's what's happening with El Salvador, and that's what's it's a groundswell, it's a bottom up innovation that's happening just like all technology uh, 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 comes into market. Typically mm -hmm. the monopoly can't see it because they're uh, the monopoly can't see it because they're um, they're, they're most advantaged by the monopoly. Right. So technology breaks the rules and it gives advantage to those furthest away to those furthest away from the monopoly. And if that technology is built on a network effect, it grows faster and faster and provides more and more value and eventually overtakes the uh, overtakes the monopoly but there's there's a strategic rationale right now for the US to actually tighten and then go into bitcoin do you think that's what's happening um if they don't if they don't, and they and and they loosen, so eventually, eventually, the cent, every central bank throughout history um, gets overtaken by 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 a treasury or the uh, um, by by populace, and it does so because we, the people, demand it. It loses its independence, and so there is either going to be a socialist takeover of the Fed, right? Either way, the Fed is ending, no matter what. Is through a uh, socialist what time, take, time period. Do you think the, uh, it, this could happen for some? So, so there's either going to be a socialist takeover of the Fed, right, where Treasury decides what the Fed's going to do because we mm -hmm. give the Treasury pa power to through elections. Um, let's call it four or five years from now, um, uh, or the Fed is going to regain time by moving. By, by tightening and then moving into Bitcoin. Um, and then they'll be irrelevant over time, over a longer t uh, t uh, time period. But, but there is no, there is no way like you, you see, um, you see, uh, UK central bank and, uh, and you can see it just loses independence because the entire financial architecture breaks and all the pension plans reset and, and, yeah. and such. So this is going to happen all over the world. Yeah, I suspect you're right. Although I would rather it not happen that way. As you said, I think the grassroots bottom up because this is such a, a fundamental shift. And what's interesting here also in relation to other, you know, uh, let's say in Africa or the developing world, even in China, where they didn't really go through the PC revolution, right? They went right to mobile and that they benefited from that in a, for, in a variety of ways. But still, you know, there's cost to buying mobile phones and most technologies up till now had a cost to adopt and that at least provided some barrier to entry to the broader world. But now we have this opt-in technology that's available all over the world through the internet at basically zero cost because you can get your 12 words for free. And that's step one, get your yep. 12 words and then you can add, Bitcoin, add Satoshis to those 12 words as and when you're capable of. And so 
because, you know, part of me is like, well, governments have gotten so big and gargantuan and bureaucratic. And do I want them to find a way to sustain their size and power longer? Or do I want that size and power to be distributed down to the people through taking back control of the money? And then we allow governance to find its level. Once everyone is in a, in a position where they're, they're more free, they're more protected from the encroachment and the, the theft that we've been discussing. And we'll see. We'll see what kind of uh, what government looks like in a, in a hyper-Bitcoinized world. In fact, you know, perhaps I'll, I'll throw that question back over to you. What, what do you think governance looks like when everyone uses Bitcoin as their, their money, let's say? So I don't think we have a word to describe it yet. So the labels that we use for democracy, capitalism, libertarianism, the labels we use are so, so antiquated based on other systems and they carry with them baggage from those other systems and, mm. and, and an ability to be. So even if you just looked at Austrian economics, the, um, because this because there's so much power in the money, many of the Austria, uh, Austrian economics look like a fringe science, right? Look, um, and, and, and if you said that in terms of most people today, they'd, oh, they'd just tune you out without actually looking at the base case there, uh, mm -hmm. base case for it. So I think many of the words that we have to describe what, what, um, what government or a democracy or, or capitalism or, or what society would look like under the rules that are this, this big a change, we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I can, I can into it what that would look like over time. I can say, um, on the way through, there's likely going to be governments that peg to it. There's other to still run inflationary monetary policy against it. And each cycle of pain through their citizens, more and more people will come over to the base layer themselves and see the truth. And it'll give more and more people advocating for the truth, a higher standard, a higher, uh, um, to be able to find more people, find more people that believe in that. And over, and, and yes, some people are going to lever against this and they're going to create giant wealth on the way up and then they're going to be wiped out completely on the uh, on on the other uh, on the other side of it they're going to build dead instruments on it because this has but this has no counterparty risk so over time it's going to be a trade a peer-to-peer -peer system between us it's going to connect all of us in in the world and in a way that we have never been connected before in the um, in the world and that i know when we get into this that's kind of profound and it's way deeper than many many of the people that are listening to this uh, probably care to go right now um but it's but it's super exciting as well because you can start to you can you can see that as this network gets stronger and you can't you can't change the rules we would change the rules and mm -hmm. and, and and that's the point if a money could be corrupted um for benefit to a one or a group of people over another group of people history proves it will be and so when you have a money that can't be corrupted by any group, if we give any advantage over anyone else, then that, that'll change the future path of, of, of society in a ways we can't even quite, quite explain today. Yeah. Question that's going to lead into the next topic we'll explore, but you just briefly came close to it there. But do you think, what do you think, the situation around debt will be in a, in a, in a Bitcoin denominated world. 
Alex Gladstein just asked me to for a conversation on this topic. Um, and so we've talked um, because because debt's going to be far, far less. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the debt on the way through, but I'm yeah. talking about so because if you if you just imagine what's happening, what's happening in Bitcoin is is this all prices are falling against Bitcoin forever. So your time is going up against Bitcoin and house values in Bitcoin will fall to the utility value. Um, they will they will keep falling. And then after that, they'll fall because technology is making them more efficient and, and, and we're bringing technology into it. But they're going to fall. They're, so they're going to keep falling forever in Bitcoin, um, in Bitcoin terms, as is everything. And so now let's in, introduce debt. And, and that's going to be... Um, be, actually, before we go there, and then why this is uh, why this is hard to see, the existing system is four orders of magnitude than Bitcoin is today. So the bigger influence, and not four times bigger, four orders of magnitude. The bigger influence is what's happening in the manipulation of the existing system. And so when it tightens and Bitcoin sells off because other people levered against Bitcoin and it gets liquidated, and people think Bitcoin's falling falling as well. Instead of and, and the lag effect of what's happening uh, happening, if if this system keeps tightening, everything collapsing and on a lag, right? So houses don't collapse right away when when you take away the money, it, it tighten the money. There's a lag time of nine to twelve months as they start to accelerate a credit collapse, and you see it later. So Bitcoin picks that up, picks that up right away. But the existing market doesn't pick it up, so people have a time reference problem, mm-hmm. and they're and they're and, and applied to this because it's so confusing. But Bitcoin's outside of that system, and it's going to mean all prices against Bitcoin are going to fall for it for uh, forever. Now, as it applies to debt, that means there will always be an incentive to lever. Um, you see this to, uh, today in in Bitcoin mining, right? In the growth. I can make more money by buying more ASICs faster and and, uh, and driving out, and then on and on the collapse, they get liquidated, and it, and it moves forward. So there's always going to be a fear and greed in markets that's going to try to lever that. But what it means is, and that's going to be true for countries, it's going to be true for individuals, it's going to be true for companies, and and that meaning if you're on the right side of that leverage, you could do really well for some time. But then you, but if you're on the wrong side, you'll get completely wiped out, and eventually people will be on the wrong side. But just similar to the miners today, nobody sells at the top because because it requires selling your winners. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's what tip, and that's what happens in markets. Fear and greed drives these markets. So now, what would happen if you put a dead instrument on something that was allowing prices to fall forever? That means the real cost of the debt is exactly inverse of what it is today, right? So the real cost of the debt gets cheaper over time. That's why we use it to finance houses, because we pay it back in cheaper nominal terms mm-hmm. in the future. And that trade is really good for us to use that to use debt to finance our growth. But in the in- inverse, it works exactly the opposite. The debt gets more expensive. Um, and so you'd have to be really careful with how much debt you're going to put on a 
business or, or a country or anything else because, um, because, uh, because it's going to be way more expensive. And in fact, it's going to be usury. And if it's usury debt that the person that you're lending to can't pay back, it doesn't matter what, if... Can you clarify what you mean by usury? The, the interest rate would be so high, the true value of the interest rate, because the, because the deflation in the in economy, the productivity gains in the economy would be bringing prices down. And you're going to have to pay that debt back with way lower, way lower revenue or, um, from, from the future instead of the, instead of the way it works today. Does usury have a ethical dimension to it? I always thought. Yeah, so I, I just use that term. I think it's 60%. Okay. Um, uh, 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 rate, but it, but it would be it. So you could get yeah. into, you could get into a lot of pain by, right. by using debt to, uh, to run, uh, run your models because mm-hmm. it works exactly inverse as it works today. Right. And so one would think that means the, the bar, the hurdle rate, the one would think that that would be mean much more stringent selection criteria, I guess, for what you're going to do with that capital, i.e. you're going to, it's going to necessitate that you deploy capital in a manner that's more likely to be of value to the people in a market. And so I would say today, because it's so low, uh, and you know, this is probably tainted with my own value judgment in many ways, but you get a lot of crap produced in a market. You get a lot of fiat stuff produced in a market because capital is so cheap. The criteria is very low for producing something. It doesn't have to appeal to that many people. The value that people ascribe to it doesn't have to be that high because you can produce it so cheaply and you can access debt so easily. But if, if there's a high cost to capital, if there's a high cost to debt, well, then you have to be even more certain or even more convicted, let's say that what you're going to produce is going to be a value to people in the market and they're going to be able to compensate you sufficiently to accommodate for that high rate of debt. And I would think that that's going to produce a market where the goods we see in a market of, are of higher quality, of higher value, are, are uh, appealing to things that we determine are, of, are more important effectively. Yeah, um, I, I suspect so. Um, but we have to also realize that we, the market chooses what we want. Like, so we, all, as the market choose the, our value drivers of the market. And a lot of times we'll choose something that's a lower cost, even if we throw it away so that those things will still exist, um, overall in a, in a market. What will, what will happen is, is, uh, and there's, and remember that free market will expand all of those ideas and the best will win. The best will mm-hmm. win more and more of us, but they'll keep on driving prices down lower and lower and lower through technology. And there will be, and, um, and so what, what that means for companies that are doing this is they're constantly going to have to innovate to create more value for society. Um, and that value for society that they gain on this system will constantly down, bring down prices for everything. And so let's, ima- let's imagine uh, an industry that was immune from that or, or, or thought it was immune from that, that it had, uh, had um, high margins. Um, where do you think all the people would move to that were out, out of work, but they, were, they had free time 
they had leisure time and everything else. They had a kind of abundance and a whole bunch of things, and they got to use their critical thinking skills to go attack a high margin business where they could make more money because they were creating more value for society. Mm-hmm. You have this swarm of entrepreneurs everywhere that are literally swarming on all of these high cost structures to be able to create more value. Yeah. And you'll get more pure competition because the entity that can dole out the winners and the losers and create the moral hazard, as we've seen, you know, from the current monetary regime would not be possible. Right. So you would get, you would bad, you know, bad competitors would be able to fail. The good ones would be able to succeed. None would get special treatment, getting closer to the monetary spigot or, or to the political apparatus wouldn't convey near as much benefit as it does today. And so you get that just pure raw competition producing better goods and services at lower prices. So this is something that, uh, um, and, and it's, it, it is one of those things. I know we talked about it with Pre- on the Preston's podcast the other day with you, with you, but in creative destruction lab, one of the, uh, one of the streams I'm in is the climate stream and energy stream. And so when you see this problem and very smart people in the room talking about solving climate change. And then everybody in the room solving with these companies that are creating extraordinary value, or if they are going to create value, value, they're early still, um, um, must decrease prices. And then, and then the offset of that decreasing prices, more value gained can't reach society because that deflation would collapse the existing systems. So governments go and manipulate prices higher. Um, you understand how broken this whole system is and how the thing that they think that they're doing solving climate change, um, cannot be solved from the system, from the way that they're, they're doing it, no matter what in, inside the, inside a fiat system that has to grow, has to obfuscate all of that, uh, that, that societal gain and concentrate mm-hmm. it. Um, so you get more and more misallocation of capital, bad ideas. Um, and those in that centralization and the more and more bad ideas has to get worse and worse and worse through this, uh, through this system, which is puts put society on a really bad path yeah well because, I mean, all, because because all the all the while when you think about the other side of this when you think about the productivity gains that should be you mentioned it before on on what should be what the prices should look like instead of what they do look like and now now you forecast artificial intelligence and robotics coming into um coming productivity gains are increasing like mm-hmm. at a staggering rate. The only reason they're not dec- increasing in, in economist mo- models is economists are looking through the existing manipulated system and of the productivity gains and, um, and measuring it as a whole system instead of what's actually happening. Yeah. And, and it's not only that they're siphoning off the gains, it's also what we both just alluded to, that their capacity to siphon off the gains means moral hazard you can bail out companies you can create you can give subsidies to create zombie companies or keep zombie companies alive all that stuff to interrupt the natural competitive process where the best winners are found and rewarded the losers die prices go down for everyone quality goes up for everyone the siphoning away is not just stealing purchasing power but it's dramatically interrupting that process so you know not only is there not as much productive increases taking place but the ones that do take place 
are largely siphoned away through the inflationary monetary policy. So you're getting, you know, you're getting effed on both ends. And it's, exactly. uh, but simultaneous to that, when I say that, I mean, the, I get more excited than angry because I'm like, wow, what's going to happen when that's not the case in, in this, in this hyper Bitcoin is hyper Bitcoinized environment that we've been discussing. And so I, I, I want to touch on the kind of efficiency and what's going to, things are going to look like in that environment. But the, the last component of this last topic that we've been discussing, you know, I don't know if you saw Lagarde. Um, There's a little <laughs> clip of her the other day where someone said, you know, where did the inflation come from? And she said, well, it came out of nowhere. And, you know, because we'd been trying to fight def deflation, you know, prices going down and what we want is stable prices. And so the inflation came out of nowhere and now we're trying to get it back down to stable. And, you know, not only is that just the height of uh, disingenuousness and dishonesty and, you know, a lot of other pejoratives, but it, the system will always inculcate a perspective that serves it. And this is part of what you, you've been discussing a lot lately as well. And so if peop, a lot of people will, will smirk or whatever at, at the inflation comment that it came out of nowhere, well, she's just being a politician. But a lot of people do still believe that stable prices are the ideal, not falling prices. Um, and we, you know, we even had a, a fairly animated conversation uh, when we were in Norway about this topic. I don't know if you remember, we were at the table with a few people. Yeah, and I remember. People, you know, were making the case that, you know, Bitcoin's great and all, but what would really be the holy grail is if we could have something that would just be stable. Now, I don't, I don't even really know what that means because money is supposed to find the balance between everyone's time preferences and demand and the natural products and services out in the market and the, the natural world itself. And so how do you get quote unquote stability without introducing, as you've been saying, noise into the system? And even then you're not getting stability, you're just shifting it elsewhere. Totally. Um, and so I think a lot of people fail to appreciate the point that you've been really banging on lately, which is all of that productivity gain should accrue to the purchasing power of the money. And that would be good because that's, that's the money continuing to find the balance between all the value exchange happening in the system and the goods and services that are being provided. As it relates to debt, and this is kind of the final point on this topic I wanted to bring to you, would it not be the case, and I, I agree, like when we have this, when we no longer have this artificial uh, cost of capital, i.e., you know, central bankers setting the interest rate, it'll, capital will find its true level based on the capital in the system and the time preferences of everybody, et cetera. But the, I, 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 think, I think we'll still have debt. And I wonder how high that hurdle rate will be because the purchasing power that accrues to Bitcoin on an annual basis, let's say, will be a result of the production and the productive yeah. capacity and the productive increases. So like I've, I've heard people say like, well, deflation is great and all, but nothing will get produced because everyone's going to hoard their money. And my response is always the fact that the deflation is coming from production. It, you, you're not going to get that deflation unless you get the production, which, which in, implies the non-hoarding of, of capital, which implies the spending of money. So you're leaving out a part of the equation. If you put the other part of the equation in, in there, it finds the appropriate balance. And so whatever the annual 
deflation will be increase in purchasing power. Let's say it's 5% for easy numbers. And the cost of capital is roughly that, or maybe a little bit more. Well, that would seem to be finding the proper balance that allows for whatever degree of production the market is demanding. And that's, and, and that's, that, that accrues to the money and just perpetuates in that manner. And those productivity games that some of that, those productivity gains get reinvested and some accrues to the purchasing power of the capital. And I don't see a conflict between the two. And so in that scenario, I think there will be much less debt, as you say, because so much now is artificial, but there will still be that negotiating of time preferences of people in the market and me saying, you're offering debt, Bitcoin at 10%, it gains 5% in purchasing power a year. I got to overcome that. Cool. I got a great idea. I'm, I'm an experienced operator. I'm going to go for it. Yeah. Do you think that's how um, it'll so, so, shake out? So, so yes, that's how it'll happen. But uh, but a lot of those companies will be funded by equity instead of debt because you, those companies will be the investors in those country, uh, companies will be want to be alongside the the entrepreneurs. And in fact, so it's something even even in ego death investing in these entrepreneurs and and so the rate of return needs to be way over what the rate of return on Bitcoin will be. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what you're investing in. And so we think that, and other VC, Bitcoin only VCs believe that too. And there's so many companies coming on top that yes, that'll happen. But in time, those companies as well, because a lot of this is open source and lots of companies, they, they won't have any natural monopoly that they can rent seek from uh, uh uh, similar to Google or or Amazon or some of the some of the companies today, today, they will have to deliver more value on a constant basis. So when you think about the portfolios that you're building and constructing and the companies that you're uh, investing in, you're building you're building against entrepreneurs that can hopefully hopefully win a market and tr- provide tremendous value and. And also understand how this new protocol wins, develops more value, and can constantly innovate, and and allow their other thing that they won on to become free, and then create the next value for more for more people. So it's an interesting it's an interesting way to think about kind of <laughs> how this new model works because it works very differently mm. than investing in the existing system. Do you think? Well, I was going to say, do you think we will have to reimagine or redefine how economic, what economic growth means or how to calculate it? And by that, I mean, well, two things. One, if there's no, I mean, the calculation of GDP is a very political thing, right? If, if all of the economic productivity of a given year is just accruing to the, to the money, how much need is there to have a nominal figure like this is how much the economy grew in a given year but so, the that's sec- actually, so what you're getting into is why this is so hard to see because gdp is the way okay can my books balance do i have enough growth in gdp to be able to pay back my debt that's really what it is and, and what's happening in society writ large is a lot of the things that used to make up the gdp number are now free that's what I was right. going to ask next. Yeah, yeah. that's they're they're like so. Kodak would have made up a portion of the GDP number, 
through their film distribution, going to camera stores, all of that. And we took a limited number of photos because photos were expensive and then developed those photos. And then we realized, oh, God, I didn't get a photo that worked. Um, and I can't go back in time. And now all of that is completely free. Editing software is free. I can take a million photos at once free. Um, and the entire stack of that, what was GDP is now gone, is free. It's, uh, um, and, I, and I, I'm being a little bit uh, dramatic there because I, I know the actual camera on the iPhone isn't free. It's a $5 um, item. Um, but, but that's a, uh, it's many cameras now and it's going to be of the cost, a fraction very, very, of that. And it's many yeah. cameras. It's going to be with AI in it. It puts together what's going to turn into virtual reality, um, and, and such, but it's so low cost for the abundance you gained out of photos. It doesn't show up in that, that GDP measure or the portion that shows up in the GDP measure is a fraction of what it used to be. And we have more value. And that's the point I keep trying to make, but it's so hard to economies aren't because um, economics is about scarcity. It's not about value. Um, and, and really important differentiator. And so if economics was about value, then you would have somebody offering you, you the, the thing you're breathing right now would be the most valuable to you. You'd pay the most for it. It's ludicrous to think that somebody could create a business running around your house with oxygen to pass you oxygen um, uh, unless you were very sick and you needed that oxygen. It was scarce for you. Or, or, or unless the oxygen is used underwater, you could create a business there. Or in space, you could create a business there. You could, so you can see that abundance creates the ability, or destroys the ability to make money. Um, and that's why your calculator is free on your phone. That's why the fo photos are free on the phone. That's why music has, is, has experienced such a, a, a steep discount. That's why all of the content that today is mostly free is because, because, because it opens up. Everybody is a content producer too competing for everybody else and prices fall as a result. So you get, a, you get abundance, um, in, in society and society and prices fall as a result. That's not captured in GDP because if, uh, um, in fact, it's worse, it's worse than that, that you're printing more money to make GDP go up mm. to have less things matter, matter, um, that's hurting society because because what's happening with technology is driving prices down. So what's happening as a result are, are food prices are going up, even despite the tech, uh, technology gains in, in them. Um, house prices are going up. So the things people need most, the things that are most scarce, energy, uh, most scarce, are, are driving up the most and uh, causing society to break. Well, the other side is still going. Well, it's driving more and more things lower and lower costs so they're completely mm -hmm. the opposite uh, opposing forces um in this and you probably heard me say this many times but it's just a really simple construct for people that don't get it abundance and money creates scarcity everywhere else scarcity and money creates abundance everywhere else mm -hmm. um, it's really that simple yeah super simple uh but still a tough one for a lot of people to wrap their head around. 
Um, so do you think it's the case that in this future Bitcoin world, because it, it, as you say, I mean, there's a political imperative, a political incentive to continue increasing GDP, both from a, you know, your political rhetoric perspective, but also in relation to how you're able to borrow and, and, and access debt and all that kind of stuff. But all of the uh, technology is basically, well, as you said, dramatically reducing the costs of all the services that we use. And in an attempt to counterbalance that, they print more, more money is printed. And the, the goods and services in a market that experience the most cost declines can weather that better. So it shows up way more in the goods and services that cannot weather that decline, as you mentioned, food and energy and things like that. And so we're clearly seem to be moving towards a, like, uh, you know, the rubber is going to meet the road soon because software is eating the world and all of that stuff is becoming much cheaper. And as you said, you know, I love that photo where you look at a desk in the 1980s and it's got the calendar and the Rolodex and all this stuff. And you look at a desk today and it has a phone. Yeah. And so all of that hardware, all of those natural resources, all of that labor has gone into one single item. And so it's made all of those things have experienced a tremendous amount of deflation. Um, and so... Again, GDP in a Bitcoin world would seem to be kind of nonsensical because it wouldn't have a political use and it wouldn't really have a use in economic calculation because the, again, the, the economic impact of all the product productivity would simply show up in the purchasing power of the money as and when it should. Um, so do you think, well, what do you think happens to GDP in the interim period now, because it's just a, it's just a false construct, just like, right. just like inflation is a false construct. It's like all of these are false constructs. Um, and, and so in that false construct, if you're measuring those false constructs and everything in your life, you're going to get really confused. Um, and that you have a new construct that's just relatively simple. Everything is going to fall on price forever against Bitcoin. Um, and it's a different framework to see the world. And, but you can imagine if you, 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 you said it earlier and I thought it was, it, our lives are literally a mirror reflection of our beliefs. Mm. And so, um, that's hard to see in yourself. Um, because you always think the thing that's not working for you is somebody else, but you control everything. You're responsible for everything that's good, but the thing that's not working is somebody else. But I, I've used this example often, but if you just, and I don't mean to pick on this example, I just mean to see it in yourself as we all know somebody who's a victim, right? And what they want in, in life is love and belonging. And how they go about getting that love and belonging is by trying to be a victim. So it's not, it's not they're trying to be bad or anything else. They just, that was what worked for them to bring people closer. Mm -hmm. And then... As they use it more and more, everybody moves away. And what do they do is they typically double down and create more drama to try to bring people closer. I find it profoundly sad because they're, because they're pushing away the thing that's all around them all the time. That love is all around them, but they can't see it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so they're pushing it away in, in search of getting it. Um, 
And the same thing is true for us. If, if it's true for that person and they can't see it, then it's probably equally true that it's, it's true for us in some area of their life that we can't see it, but everyone else can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you turn that mirror around and you say, okay, if it's true for them, but they can't see it, then it must be true. That means my entire life, my everything is I'm responsible for what it looks like. And that's both empowering and scary because you'll find some of the things that you, that you're doing are actually pushing you further and further away from the things that you actually want. But just if I go back to that victim analogy, if we're both walking down the street and we're seeing different opportunities, I will see different opportunities. My world will look totally different than their world. It's their world is true for them. It is a reflection of their beliefs and it is true for them. Um, and my world is true for me. And so now let's abstract this out to this layer that we're at in Bitcoin and the rest of the world. The rest of the world, their reflection of their beliefs in that system is true for them. And it'll feel, and it'll get worse and worse and worse, and it's going to drive a lot of pain. Um, but it is nonetheless true for them. And, 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 they, and many people can't see that they're part of that system that's, uh, that's true for them. Um, and then it's true as well for people that are in Bitcoin and, um, and it's true for, and I'm not saying all people in Bitcoin are great. All people in the existing world are bad. I'm saying that because even in Bitcoin, you find some yelling all the time, right? <laughs> and then wondering why they're mad all the time. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so, so we create the, the world around us is a reflection of our beliefs. And then we live in that greater world that's kind of uh, it's kind of moving so um, together. So this new system and this shared belief and, and, and what this is, is truth, hope, and abundance is attracting more and more people from the system we lived in. And it's just transitioning over time. Mm-hmm. And what, the, what the constructs of that old system look like, whether deep GDP, inflation, debt, control, coercion, all of these constructs that are a requirement of the old system are just going to fall away in the new one. Um, and the more time you spend in the new one, you start to see more of that beauty all around you. Yeah, very well said. And I totally agree. It's, I guess, well, there's many, uh, what seems, what I suspect will happen is that they'll continue to optimize for a metric that actually contributes to exacerbating the problem. Again, something you've allu- uh, alluded to so much. If you're optimizing for GDP and doing so is actually furthering the suppression and furthering the, the theft and further uh, misallocating the benefits of, of productive increases to a very small few, you're actually optimizing for what's a terrible thing to optimize for. And, and even if you think you're doing the right thing, as many people do, you know, you, you, you're, well, you're doing almost the exactly wrong thing because you're optimizing for something that makes everything worse. So that's why, that's why I use business examples in the, in the book, in, uh, in the book and that Netflix example, right. Is a, is a business example and, and, but it's repeated over and over and over again. And it's repeated in every technology innovation, but what was, what was blockbuster, um, optimizing for, they were optimizing for the real estate. Mm. Um, and you needed to get more people in the real estate and, 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 the, and, and the thing that gave people, so instead of optimizing for what's best for users, you're optimizing for the legacy business 
what's best for my real estate. And I need more users to come into the store to be able to to then pay late fees to come back to to this to store because I have this real estate that acts as an anchor around my new around the new innovation that could bring more value to users where they are instead of where I am. And to be able to make that work, oh, I know what they want. They want popcorn and candy when they get their movie. So I'm going to add candy aisles to the stores. Right. And so you optimize for the thing for the thing that protects your your monopoly instead of optimizing for what's best for the users. Mm-hmm. And it's really simple. And that's what's happening at a global level right now around our existing systems. Instead of optimizing for users, us mm-hmm. are optimizing for what protects the system. Right. Um Two more, Jeff, and then I'll let you go. But one of the, the things I think about a lot is, you know, we've explored this idea about how the manipulation in the system and the manner in which that causes capital to be allocated and taking, let's say, free value choices away from individuals and allocating them to a much smaller group by virtue of, you know, the money printer, let's say, but other mechanisms, of course, uh, as well. Um, that creates a, a landscape, a market, a world, if you like, that probably doesn't look like it would look like if everyone had the same opportunity to make value decisions, make exchange decisions, and employ, uh, allocate the capital that they've earned. And so that creates a, an environment, a matrix, if you like, where our ideas of what is valuable, what is progress, what, where we're kind of headed as a collective humanity also looks different, but we exist in that system that's sending us those signals all the time. And so even those among us who are aware of those signals, it's impossible to be completely unaffected by them, even if you are aware, as you said earlier, I mean, we all have blind spots. And so in, in the context of what we've been discussing about how things will change, and this is an entirely personal question because there's no right answer to it, but how do you think if at all, the notion of progress uh, will be different when everyone is in that different situation and we look at economic growth differently and we look at value differently and different things are being produced in the market because of the cost of capital issue we, t- we talked about earlier. Like, how do you think we will, we will look at progress and will it be different than it is today? Yeah, it'll be very different than it is today it'll, um, because all of that progress will will as a natural byproduct be shared by society and i'm not saying that more some people if you're creating more value for society you'll get paid more bitcoin as a result until you don't create more value for society and then you'll start distributing your bitcoin as you're paying for other things that other people created for society but all mm-hmm. of that um it, again it it, cha- it it changes it's so profound a change um it's hard to describe what that change looks like. I'm not going to say utopian because I don't believe in, I think what we do as humans is we constantly solve problems to make our lives better. But if, if the problems that we solve that make our lives better in turn, make all all other lives better, then we win faster and faster and faster as a a result. And we'll we'll still find problems, but then Mm -hmm. we'll solve those problems and they'll, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll magnify and make all lives better as well. Um, and, and it moves, it moves, uh, in game theory, it moves, 
a shelling point from we only cooperate because you're forced to, right? Because we have bigger weapons to a shelling point um, that, w that we co cooperate naturally. Um, and and the, and it's again, it's such a profound change. It's hard to see. It's it's hard to determine kind of the rate and velocity of that change, mm -hmm. and how different tests and different because you could look at every government um, or nation today as as a test right now or a bond offering El Salvador <clears throat> a test to say how could this work and all of those tests won't some of those tests won't work, but we'll solve those problems. Um, and and it's solving them on a base layer that's decentralized, secure, and truthful forces this the 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 abundance gained from solving those problems mm -hmm. broadly to society. Yeah, you know, I, I I think a lot and explore a lot and have lots of conversations around the personal changes that happen as a result of learning about and using Bitcoin. And I think such is the case with technology generally, and of course, especially with this one, but. As you were saying, as your needs are met and as you continue to discover value, you move up that kind of, I don't like to invoke it because it's imperfect, but like a hierarchy of needs sort of thing. Yeah. And right at the top is actualization. And that's kind of like a black box because the rest are, you know, pretty much determined. Your food, your shelter, you know, your relationships, need for uh, uh, well. love and things like that. Yeah. Um, but what's in that final apex is like, we don't really know, but I do think technology is a force for helping you resolve everything below that, which frees you up to explore the space of that final, you know, top of the pyramid. And I think that's the nature of technology generally. And if we're, we're asserting here that we're on the precipice of integrating a technology that dramatically improves our capacity to uh, provide for and have access to everything beneath that part, it's really exciting to see what kind of changes are going to be available and what kind of changes are going to occur as a result of spending a lot more time in that, you know, in that upper, uh, the, the top of that pyramid yeah. and you and myself and a lot of people that are deep in the weeds here, I think, uh, we're experiencing that already now, you know, there's definitely a self-selection, you know, people that it would appeal to that sort of process or those sorts of, um, ideas would appeal to are drawn into this stuff perhaps earlier than others, but it's certainly been my experience. And I know it's been yours that going around to all these Bitcoin conferences and you're, you're seeing that in people, you're seeing that they're, they're looking at value differently and they're looking at their own development and refinement differently. And they're looking at the work, the, the life and the world that they want to create differently. And it's really amazing. And it's incredible. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. It's like just to, to see what's happening there. That's why it's such a positive force. Um, it's just, it's, a, it, if you're bullish on, if you're bullish on people, if you're bullish on humanity and you see what's happening here, it's, it, it's really hard not to get excited about where this goes. Yeah. And that's exactly, so that was the, going to be the question is I, I dug up a, a tweet of yours. I'm not sure how long ago it was, but you said, if Bitcoin failed, my life would be enriched anyways because of all the beautiful relationships gained. And I just want to tag that on to the end because I think a lot of people listening will know about that aspect of the story and perhaps even felt it. But I think a, a, another big chunk will not w have yet encountered the aspect of this phenomenon that is outside of the economic and monetary and investing domain. You know, where, as you, as you say, I mean, I think you say something like that because 
all of those interactions you've had at these conferences and such uh, have been so valuable to you and they've been so enriching to you that you make a comment like that. So, you know, perhaps not a specific question, but, you know, can you, can you put some meat on that bone and just what it's been like being involved in this over the last couple of years and how, how it has enriched your life? Yeah. And I think that's, and, and I alluded to it before. I think I've gotten more than I've given. Um, and, and people come to me and say how I've changed their life and everything else. And, and they in turn mine. Right. Um, and if I think about all of these people that, that, that I've met and I really mean, uh, I'm, I'm going to be gone one day. It's the life. It's, it's the, it's the people that you meet along the way. It's your friendships and, and, and relationships, uh, along the way, the people you touched without even knowing you touched them. Mm. Um, or the ideas that you might've contributed then somebody else added, or my idea might've come from hearing something else that I didn't even rec subconsciously realize that, uh, or consciously realize that, uh, that I, that, that I heard that then I built on to, and then somebody built onto mine, everything else. We are all connected, everything. Mm -hmm. We are all connected. Um, and so shouldn't the layer that connects us all be be a base layer based on truth. Um, and, 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 and so once you see, once, once you see that and you see the beauty in people all over the world, it's hard not to just want to experience more of that. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more, man. Um, and thank you for all the work that you constantly do and all the trips you make and the travel, most of it, I'm sure at your own expense to, uh, be a part of this and help to educate and, I'm grateful for your, your contribution to all this. So thank you for the time today and, and all the other work you do. Yeah. Right back at you, my friend. All right, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Sounds great. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Jeff. If you'd like to hear more from him, follow him on Twitter at Jeff Booth, J-E-F-F-B-O-O-T-H, and visit jeffreybooth.com for links to all his great work. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.